Hello and welcome to episode 235 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Urbanowitz. Welcome back. How are you, Ian? I'm doing all right, Jason. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you. That was my best Midwestern answer for you. That was great. Because Thank you. As you know, it's a soft okay, but we're, we're hanging in there. Yeah, no, it's been a good week so far as far as the aviation business is concerned. Although I should say, for regular listeners of the podcast, that a few things that we've talked about, oh, I don't know, months ago are finally kind of in the works and we're getting ready to release them. So we'll have a lot more to say about some really cool new features coming to the web and apps at the same time in the next couple of weeks. So pencil down episode 237, I think it's going to be where we'll talk about those. But I've been playing around with that this week in some beta testing. But other than that, we've got a hodgepodge of a show this week. Nothing huge. I wouldn't say there's a real like main story this week. It's it's just some updates and some good some good news mostly all around the industry. And then the news that's maybe not categorized as good isn't terrible. So I think we've got ourselves a pretty good show. Should we dive in? Yeah. Not terrible news. We'll take it. We'll take Yeah. We'll take it. So we got a little bit more information from the Russian investigators on the Ural Airlines A320 that landed in a field near, well, I shouldn't say near, but landed in a field in, on its in a way. Field. In a field as it was trying to divert to Novosibirsk and from Omsk. And Rosa Vyatsia, I think I got that right, is the Russian air transport investigator. And they provided a bit more information about how what happened happened. As it turns out, the pilots didn't know that the gear was still down. Which kind of explains what happened as far as the aircraft running out of fuel. Jason, I think you flagged this particular bit of information when they landed with nearly no fuel remaining. 216 liters left in the tank. That is not a lot. Not not a lot. Not a lot. So not only did they run out of fuel, but they didn't come anywhere close to their diversion point with anywhere near the fuel they would have needed to get there. So this wasn't even like, oh, a slight miscalculation. They were way off. And it turns out that when they had this hydraulic issue, apparently with the green system on this 320 and initiated to go around, they went to retract the gear as they would do. And they, according to the FDR data, the gear did not retract, as we know, but the crew somehow didn't notice that. They didn't look to make sure that the, I, I guess, that the lights were turned off, the gear indication lights were off, and that the gear was up and locked. And they just ran their fuel calculations to their diversion point, thinking they had a totally clean aircraft aerodynamically speaking, when in reality, it seems like the flaps and the slats and all the gear was down, which is quite problematic if you're trying to do a fuel calculation to get to a diversion point, because they didn't take any of that seemingly into account. And that is how they ended up in a field. So all the early posturing and congratulation to the crew, probably a bit premature because they themselves put themselves in that field, which probably isn't something that should be celebrated. 
Yeah, I mean, the... It's tough. Like, you got to congratulate them that they put the aircraft down and no one was hurt. But it's hard to do that at the same time, knowing that it should never have happened due to their own miscalculation and their own lack of awareness that their aircraft was significantly in a different configuration than they thought it was. Right, right, exactly. That's the double-edged sword to use. We'll pick a metaphor. We also learned a little bit more this week about what Ural plans to do with the aircraft. As it turns out, they're You're gonna going to your hat. <laughs> I am. I am. They're going to fly this plane out. Well, they're going to move it somehow. All signs point to them actually flying it out. A few of the fan blades were damaged by the ingestion of debris as the aircraft landed in the field. Those fan blades are going to be replaced. The aircraft is going to be placed up on platforms to help keep the aircraft safe from whatever's happening underneath it. And it sounds like once the aircraft has been repaired as best it can, it will be moved. And Ural Airlines says that the aircraft will fly again. Well, they say will likely fly again. I guess there's some hedging there. But the airline has shared pictures of its technicians in the field, and I mean that literally, servicing the engines. There's a nice little like Great British Bake Off tent thing next to the engine. If we go back a few years, there was the purpose-built inflatable tent that Swiss and Boeing used to replace the engine on, I believe it was uh, Swiss Flight 49, which diverted to Iqaluit in northern Canada. It was super cold, so they brought in a tent so they could work on the engine not in northern Canada. This tent, very different, much more having a birthday party in a backyard kind of thing, but a tent nonetheless. And they'll replace what needs replacing and it sounds like they're going to fly it out. So yeah, I guess I need to figure out whether I'm going to have ketchup or barbecue sauce in my hat. Make it Chicago style. There you go. I'll get some celery salt. Make it interesting. It shouldn't be impossible to do that. The field they landed in is quite large actually. And if they pave the field in front of them or I can't imagine they're just going to wait for the ground to freeze and then just give it a go with the ground as is. I assume they're going to do something, flatten it, compress the soil like you would do before you pave, or maybe they will actually pave it. But there's no real reason they couldn't or shouldn't do this. As we know, they need every aircraft they can get their hands on. And if this one is perfectly serviceable outside of a few fan blades that happens from time to time anyway, why not give it a shot, right? You get the same pilots that put the aircraft there in the first place. Bring them back. Have them get the plane (laughs) out of there. Make it their responsibility. There you go. There you go. Well, I mean, we'll... Keep an eye on it. it There, you uh, get it out. You, you, you put it. I like that. We'll keep an eye on it, and if it does, in fact, fly again, we'll track it. So we have our first contestant in the Mexico has been returned to category one. We're going to add new routes in the name of Viva Aerobus. They are adding five new routes to the United States post return to category one. So they are the first, but by no means will they be the last to add new routes to the US. So that's good to see. 
yeah, if you're interested in some of these routes, we have Airbuses adding five new dots in the U.S. to the map. Austin, Texas, Denver, Colorado, Miami, Florida, Oakland, California, Orlando, Florida. So kind of all over the place a little bit. And all of those are out of Monterey, which is interesting and operate less than daily. But for anyone trying to fly transborder down to Mexico, this is a nice, nice development for you. And I'm surprised it even took this long to get our first announcement. And I'm sure other Mexican and U.S. airlines will be right behind Viva Airbus and announcing something. Yeah, maybe there, there takes a while to get the, the filing in or something like that. But good to see it happening. And we'll keep an eye on who else is adding new routes because I'm sure it'll start to fall into place rather quickly. Yep. This one is kind of unusual in that when I looked at the data, it clearly showed an issue. But then looking at the weather, there wasn't anything that really popped out at me. I'm talking about JetBlue Flight 1256 into which the NTSB is opening an investigation because the aircraft suffered severe turbulence and eight people, including seven passengers and one flight attendant, were injured as the aircraft passed near Jamaica at about 34,000 feet. This is, I mean, not the first turbulence investigation that the NTSB has opened in recent memory, though before I say they're becoming more common, I want to definitely check the data on that one. But my anecdotal evidence detector says that this is becoming more common, where we're seeing the NTSB, not necessarily that turbulence events are becoming more common, but that the NTSB is then investigating them. Yeah. It's interesting to see what exactly they're investigating for. What are they hoping to get out of this? Is it simply a human factors things of like, how were these passengers injured on board the aircraft rather than why is this turbulence happening in the first place? I assume that's what the NTSB is looking at here. Since if there are any recommendations they can make on how to make the cabin safer, they'll do that. But yeah, I don't really recall this kind of thing happening in years past. Yeah. Wear your seatbelt. Even when the seatbelt sign is off, wear your seatbelt. That is sound advice, Ian. It's the only kind of advice I have, I think. Excellent. I hope. Let's see. Just kind of bouncing around the board. I feel like that one contestant on Jeopardy who just kind of bounced around the board and it made all the other contestants kind of angry. But and that's you never what we're get doing the double today. daily. Yeah. yeah just all over the place. Just going all over the place. But this comes from an interview that Sky West CEO Chip Childs gave late last week where he talked about the pilot shortage that SkyWest has been facing and put a number to it. So SkyWest is down 1,200 pilots from 2019. So in 2019, they had 5,500 pilots and they currently employ 4,300 pilots. He said, quote, we still have a major pilot shortage that is having a huge impact on us as a company, the entire industry, and small communities. SkyWest, of course, is a regional carrier that flies for United Airlines, among others. And he says, quote, we are literally 1,200 pilots short. Yeah. I mean, the numbers check out. If you look at planespotters.net and look up SkyWest, of their 574 aircraft, they have 124 parked, which is a significant chunk of their fleet, which I guess could be explained by those 
pilots that they do not have. Granted, 67 of those aircraft are aging unwanted CRJ-200, so the actual number is more like 43 CRJ-700s and a little under a dozen CRJ-900s, but those add up. So it's unfortunate to see them with so many aircraft that they just cannot operate because they don't have the pilots, but to have an actual number assigned to that is, wow, you're not fixing that anytime soon. But wait, there's more. Because as Jason mentioned, yeah, I know, right? As Jason mentioned, there are about 100 aircraft parked. But here's the thing. There's also a big shortage of aircraft maintenance technicians. So even if you had 1,200 pilots to fly those aircraft tomorrow, which is not going to happen, but even if you did, you would still have a squeeze on people who can make sure that those aircraft are ready to fly. And even if you had all of those aircraft mechanics in place, we don't have enough air traffic controllers to route them through the sky anyway. So I don't know if this is exactly a supply chain thing, but there's a lot conspiring against these regional aircraft from getting back in the air anytime soon. Yeah. And if they did get in the air, they really hit severe turbulence anyway, right? I mean, who knows at this point? You want to do some orders now? Yes, that's the good stuff. All right, here we go. Air France KLM Group has gone for the A350. I think this was reported a couple weeks ago, kind of previewed by John Ostra over at the we Air got a Current. taste, a preview. Yeah. John presents an interesting framing here. In the context of a fleet choice, Air France KLM Group is going with the A350 in part because those particular aircraft have the range at the moment to make routes around Russian airspace work because Air France KLM and other airlines absolutely are operating under the same, I guess, set of priors. Russian airspace is going to be unavailable to all of these airlines for some years to come. At least through the range of the delivery of these aircraft, which ranges from 2026 through 2030. So, I mean, this is an interesting thing where, I mean, geopolitics have always been a consideration for aircraft purchasing and which routes airlines are going to operate. But I mean, this is physically a large problem that airlines are solving for by ordering specific aircraft. And I think that's something that we'll explore a bit more in the future as we start talking about other kind of ultra long range routes coming online beginning in, you know, in the next few years. Yeah, so this order covers 50 A350 900s and A350 1000s, which are a bit shorter range, and an additional purchase rights for 40 of these aircraft. Like I mentioned, their expected delivery, which is always, you know, kind of air quoting these days from 2026 through 2030. And these are primarily to replace older aircraft, specifically the Airbus A330 and older 777s, I assume the 777-200s that are getting quite elderly over at Air France. And I think some of these, it's fair to say, will end up at KLM as well, not just at Air France, but we don't have any sort of breakdown of which will go to Air France, which will go to KLM. But combined for the Air France KLM group, that brings them up to 99 A350s on order, including the A350 dedicated freighter, which Air France KLM is the launch operator, I believe, or launch customer for. So that's interesting, but I really wish Airbus had like a buy 99, get one free A350 on order. (laughs) Because 99 is just like one more. Come on, you need one more, right? I think they need one more. Yeah. 
Yeah, one more. Can't hurt. All right. We'll write a letter or something and go from there. Another interesting stat, Air France KLM Group says by 2028, the share of new generation aircraft in the Air France KLM fleet will reach 64% compared to just 5% in 2019. I thought that was an interesting stat. And I'm happy they included that because I assume that includes everything NEO, everything A350, everything 787 as well. So that's a pretty major stat there. 5% to 64% in just half a decade is pretty outstanding. Yeah. But Air France KLM is not the only airline group to order some new aircraft this week. On the other side of the ocean and in another manufacturer's pocketbook comes Air Canada taking 18 787-10s. But Jason... No 777 freighters. They've canceled that order as part of the 787 order or in conjunction with it. Interesting move. Interesting. Bit of a bummer. Yeah. This order is for 18 787-10 aircraft with options for 12 more. The delivery date for these is, I guess, somewhat soon, late 2025. Again, I'm air quoting because delivery date estimates mean nothing these days, especially with Boeing. So check back in a year or two. Don't know whose delivery slots they may have taken, but these will last through the first quarter of 2027. Yeah, very interesting that Air Canada only last year had agreed to take two Boeing 777 dedicated freighters. And then I guess this 78710 order, they somehow, I don't know, maybe traded them in or got credit for it. They just decided, you know what? Nah, we don't need those. We're good with our 767s. <laughs> yeah, we don't need it. Yeah, it's, I mean, the aviation freight industry has cooled off substantially since COVID, but only like not even a year. I think it was maybe 11 months since they announced the 777 order. Very quick turnaround on that. But I don't know. That's good. Being nimble and not taking aircraft you don't actually need is a good thing. And 777 freighters are not, they're not small. So, I mean, that's a lot of aircraft to be stuck with if you've reassessed your need and say, you know what, we don't need that. Air Canada also has, you know, a number of aircraft in the conversion pipeline. So, you could say that, you know, the 767, that's good enough for us. We're just going to stick with that and leave the 777s to, to somebody else. On the other side of things, though, IAI is opening up a new conversion house in Arizona for the 777-300ERSF also known, I guess, under the marketing name of The Big Twin, which I think is kind of amusing still, but we'll go with it. So that's going to open up a pair of conversion lines for the 777-300ER into freighters. So who knows, maybe Air Canada will come back once those are open and take converted freighters instead of brand new ones. I don't know. It's possible. It has its own 300ERs. Maybe it's more economical for them to trash those from passenger to freight. I don't know. Buying an outright brand new dedicated 777 freighter, that, that's a lot more expensive than a conversion. So maybe we'll hear more from Air Canada soon. I'm looking at Eric Kulish's article on freight waves, and he says, they didn't call me back when I asked why. So oh, okay. they're keeping mum on exactly why they did what they did so far. But hopefully we'll- I'm we'll sure they the had a reason. Jason, we're approaching the cliff, which is a possible U.S. government shutdown. And as we like to stay out of the politics of things, I just wanted to touch for a moment because I'm sure there are a million other podcasts where where that's the topic of discussion. But I do just want to touch on for a moment kind of 
some of the more interesting or more less thought of things that a government shutdown would affect. Of course, the aviation industry being denoted as a critical industry keeps moving. Things keep happening. Air traffic controllers, still, like we talked about last week, air traffic controllers still have to work. You know, People that are entrusted with the safety of aviation must continue to, to show up even though they're not getting paid. But things that don't keep happening if the government is shut down include ATC training. So while existing air traffic controllers still need to show up for work, those who are currently in training don't get trained anymore. So that backs up that pipeline even further. And one of the interesting things that I did not think about, which which makes sense to me, is that the JetBlue Spirit merger trial, which is scheduled to begin next month, might be delayed. Well, I mean, it's JetBlue related, so of course it's going to be delayed. That's just natural. Ooh, wow. That was a T-ball right there. Thank that was you. T-ball. Yeah, that, you. You teed me up for that one. But the longer this is dragged on and delayed, the better, because I just booked a Spirit flight the other day, and it was like $130 <laughs> less than JetBlue. So there's your evidence. I, I hope this goes on forever, and Spirit remains an independent airline. I'm kind of afraid that the outcome of this trial might not go the way I want it to. So mm. I don't know, maybe that's good. But if we could avoid another government shutdown, which anecdotally may have ended last time because air traffic controllers said enough is enough and kind of staged an unofficial walkout and kind of had a, a sick out and that slowed down, let's say, Congress people from getting to and from DC to do their job, had a hand in, in expediting the end of the last government shutdown. Mm-hmm. So I hope it doesn't come to that again. But if we could just avoid that, go, go back to Washington, do your damn jobs. There you go. We will leave that, but we'll stick with legal news. Here is an interesting one following up on a story we talked about last week, where Acasa Air over the summer and through this month had to stop expansion and cut flying because pilots left the airline and went flying somewhere else. Acasa is now filing suit against those pilots saying they did not give enough notice and therefore are in breach of their contracts. So they, the airline is saying that pilots were required to provide six-month notice before leaving. They did not do that. And therefore, they're filing suit in India's high court. A quote from Akasa says, quote, our commitment to be reliable remains sacrosanct. I love this quote. This means that we have chosen to fly less and give up market share in the short term in order to offer more reliable network to our customers. Good on them. Go get them. Very interesting scenario here. They're just not great all around, especially if you know the court rules in in favor of the airline, and then what happens to the pilots? Do they come back to Acasa? Do they? I don't know what the end result here is, but it's just going to be an interesting one to follow. Restitution? Uh, I don't know. Kind of hard to drag them back forcibly to an right. old job, but maybe they get some restitution out of it. I don't know. Yet another case in the the Indian aviation drama sphere, which just doesn't seem to be relaxing anytime soon. The drama Between sphere. This All right. And the Pratt and Whitney Neo engines outright impacting Indian airlines to a higher degree than most other regions 
going off the schedule here, but Cranky Flyer put together a nice analysis of the airlines most impacted by the Pratt & Whitney PW1100G issues. And Indigo Mm -hmm. is probably one of the most exposed airlines in the world to this, other than Go First, which isn't even operating anymore. So that's a fun twist. But between Indigo having half its fleet exposed to being grounded and go first and not flying at all and Acasa having its pilots defect to another airline. This is just one one heck of a turbulent country as far as just trying to get from A to B is defined. This is never a dull moment. Just to note on the Pratt & Whitney issues, a small note, but seemingly important here. Pratt & Whitney is expanding its MRO capabilities at its Singapore facilities, and they will have a two-thirds increase in facility capacity, so further making sure that they can get aircraft back in the air, get engines back on wings even quicker than they've already had. Good to see that they're doing this. They have 13 active gear turbofan MRO centers around the world, and they're going to have six more online by 2025. And it sounds like they're all going to be needed. And then some. Whatever they're adding, it's not going to be enough. Add more. There's still going to be quite a dramatic impact, but we will keep an eye on it, or Brett Snyder will keep an eye on it for us again. There you go. Good on him. Yeah. More good news. I mean, maybe not for you or I, but for the people of San Antonio and the people of Frankfurt, I suppose, Condor (laughs) is launching a Frankfurt-San Antonio route beginning next year. I did not see that one coming. No, but I'm assuming there is some degree of subsidies or financial incentive for Condor, which is fine and normal, happens all the time. But San Antonio is not an airport I expected to get transatlantic service from a well-known airline. This is not a Norse Atlantic, sorry, or a Norwegian. This this is Condor. This is a legitimate, well-known airline, at least in in my opinion. Again, Cranky Flyer, that that guy's everywhere today, put together a a pretty good (laughs) analysis of why two very similar Texas cities being San Antonio and Austin have dramatically different international services. While Austin has BA and had Condor, Norwegian, Lufthansa, KLM, Virgin Atlantic, San Antonio had absolutely nothing. And there's some interesting socioeconomic and other reasons. Well, just looking at the companies that are in Austin, like Amazon, Apple, IBM, and then the companies that are in San Antonio being Whataburger and USAA and I think a cheeseburger, another cheeseburger? No, H-E-B. What is that? Uh, That's a supermarket, right? Supermarket. Supermarket. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. We're going to get a lot of hate mail, but we don't have that here. We have different supermarkets than you. But it's interesting to see an airport like San Antonio get international service, not just international because they already have service to Mexico, but transatlantic service on an A330neo nonetheless with a really premium business class. That's great for them. Yeah. So quoting the San Antonio Express News, which has an article on this, Jason is correct, of course. They are offering some concessions to the airline in order to begin Again, this seasonal service. Not out of the ordinary. This no, no. This is, this is all the time. Completely normal. This goes back to a lot of things we talked about, but one of the kind of big head scratchers that we had was the Lufthansa St. Louis flight, which a podcast listener helpfully wrote in and explained, and it was good to see them at Dorkfest a few weeks ago. But basically, there's a one company buying all of these tickets, and the city of St. Louis said, here's a whole bunch of money. 
along the way. But in the Condor San Antonio case, Condor is getting $1.5 million in fee waivers and marketing grants. And the Greater San Antonio, Texas and Visit San Antonio Visitor and Conventioners Bureau has an agreement with the airline to pay the airline if passenger numbers do not hit a certain level. So basically, there's a floor, a revenue floor for the airline guarantee. It's a win-win for Condor. They either fill the plane up and make a profit or they don't fill the plane up and somebody pays them and they make a profit. So why not? If you've got the aircraft to spare, do it. Yeah. One of the interesting things as well here, as far as this kind of particular flight goes, is it seems like Condor is going to be the first of what San Antonio hopes is a much larger expansion of international traffic. They're spending about $2.5 billion to expand the airport. And they're hoping that this kind of you know kicks off a major expansion for San Antonio and the airport. So it'll be interesting to see if this works out, do other airlines come in and say, all right, we'll give it a shot now. And then what are they going to demand as far as concessions go? Or San Antonio going to say, no, 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 Condor was first and you can all just pay your own way. We'll see. We will see. So this is an interesting one and one that we've talked about a few times in the context of individual reports, but it just it's interesting to see IATA paying attention to this as well. Mark Searle, who is IATA's global safety director, was speaking at the World Safety and Operations Conference in Hanoi and gave a presentation on why IATA is concerned about the timely release of aviation incident and accident final reports. So the overarching concern is that the investigations that are being conducted aren't being reported on in a timely manner. So airlines, especially those that are looking to aviation safety investigators, to tell them, is there something wrong with this aircraft? Is there something that pilots are doing that we should make sure our pilots don't do to make sure that this aircraft doesn't crash because we operate the same aircraft in our fleet? So LATAM's head of safety gave a presentation on the issue. And of 242 accidents between 2018 and the middle of this year, just slightly less than half have had their final accident investigation report published. It's interesting. Yeah. The time to reporting is lengthening. Yeah. I mean, even here in the US with the NTSB, I feel like we are often very quickly getting an initial report, which they are obligated to do within, I think, a two-week window. And then the final report often seems to take a very, very, very long time to get. I mean, there are cases where I'm thinking of like the American A321 taking off from JFK that almost rolled over, but thankfully didn't. It took years to get that final report. After an initial report was put out, basically said nothing. It was radio silence for years. So I understand that airlines would want these final reports in a more timely manner. But if there are X number of reports and Y number of investigators, you're only going to be able to put out so many final reports. So I guess what they're asking for is more investigators. Would that be it? How else do you solve that? That's an interesting question because in the US, the NTSB says that it is currently hiring more investigators or hiring more investigators. And they're hopeful that they will continue to clear the backlog faster. So plenty of open positions at the NTSB now if you want to join the NTSB, but also they've already hired a bunch of people and will continue to do so. So yes, I think that's a big part of it. But also, 
I think there's some things playing into it here where we're looking at, to use the crash that occurred in China a few years ago now, where uh, China Eastern 737-800 crashed into a mountainside and there's no report yet. Yeah. And the 737-800 is perhaps the most widely flown aircraft around the world. Yeah. At least in commercial. That's a tricky one, but part of me feels like we're never going to get that final report because we all know what happened or we all think we know what happened. And I think that particular government isn't one that will ever want to admit what we all know. And that's what happened. So that's an interesting example to pick. There still needs to be a final report. It still needs to be issued and it can still be questioned by the international community. But yeah, they do need to eventually issue something because I'm pretty sure the investigation on that one probably stopped the day it began. And here we are years later and there's still nothing. So yeah, that's a very, very interesting topic for IATA to bring up. Good on them for that. And speaking of, I guess, an incident that will certainly require a report or has required a report, this was an odd one, Jason, that you flagged. What happened to an Air Canada Dash 8? Or I should say Air Canada Jazz Dash 8? Air Canada branded. Let's go. Air Canada Express branded. A Dash 8 on a maintenance flight, so there were no passengers on this, had work done to replace a spoiler cable and was carrying out a test flight at a Toronto Pierce on September 6th. This article comes to us as usual these days from Flight Global. And there was an issue where there was an unsafe gear indication with the left main gear. They did their analysis, their troubleshooting, their quick analysis of what was going on in the air. They climbed to 5,000 feet. Talked. To, they used their quick reference handbook procedures, and they landed without incident. But when investigators literally dug into the aircraft to find out why did this happen, and I'm quoting here, subsequent investigation determined that the tool found was an extension magnetic tool not under the operator's control and lacking any identification marker. So they actually found an unidentified tool that interfered with the gear mechanism on this Dash 8. The operator conducted research into prior maintenance in the area, but found no documented reason for the tool to be located there. So that's really interesting. So whatever happened here in the investigation, they found an unidentified tool with no markings in an area where there had been no documented maintenance. That's all sorts of interesting, raises a lot of questions. Was this a tool that was left there during the manufacture of the aircraft? Or was there some unapproved, undocumented repair of the aircraft? Was someone working on the aircraft using an unapproved tool just to make life easy and then forgot about it? I don't know. But that is not something you hear of all that often. Yeah. An extension magnetic tool. So I'm I'm thinking it's some sort of pole with a magnet on it? Did they like roll over it and it magnetized to the area and got jammed in there? Like that's an interesting one. Just a very strange set of circumstances. But and then I'm for glad to they, coincidentally they happen, impact on a maintenance flight with no passengers, that's a mighty big coincidence too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, hmm. let's close the show with a discussion that we love to talk about. And that, of course, I refer to slot usage at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. I mean, who doesn't love that? I mean, I'm going to use in part with several hundred other people one of those slots coming up in November. So there yeah. you go. Love those slots. So go ahead, Jason. You have actually been following this much more closely than I Yes. The Haneda slots are a very contentious topic here in the US. The US DOT and the US Airlines are only granted so many of these prime 
slot to Haneda. Think of it like LaGuardia. You can only operate to Haneda as you would LaGuardia. You have slots. They are divvied out to airlines, and only those airlines can only operate to that airport at that given time. The DOT had kind of, not really an auction, but it divvied up the slots to the US major airlines. But they did that with the express condition that the airlines had to apply with specific routes in mind. And one of those routes happened to be granted to Delta for Portland to Tokyo Haneda. But Delta, I guess, overestimated the demand on that particular route and never really launched the route in earnest. It would operate it at the absolute bare minimum required amount of flights. It operated once every like three months or something like that. I'm making that up for dramatic effect, but it was something like exceptionally rarely at the absolute minimum requirement would Delta operate this flight. And eventually, finally, Delta said, you know what? Okay, we don't need it. And it returned to the USDOT. And at that point, United absolutely pounced on the opportunity to apply to operate from Houston to Haneda and also Guam to Haneda, which is an interesting option. And if you get a chance to read the press release and also the actual United DOT filing, there's a lot of snark and a lot of condescension on Delta on United's part to get those slots. But we will see. Lawyers with too much time on their hands. A lot of these DOT filings from US airlines are actually quite sarcastic and overly dramatic and interesting. And this one is no exception. But it is interesting that United said, if you grant us these routes to Haneda, we will start operating them as soon as like feasibly possible, coming up as soon as December of this year. Even if we haven't had a chance to put it on sale yet, we're going to start operating it. That's how badly we want these routes. And that that's just that's we have an a plane twist. sitting at the end of the runway right now. We it's are ready to go. it while it's rest. It's constantly revving its engines, ready to go. <laughs> it's just interesting to see a conclusion of something where Delta was really screwing around with these slots and had clearly no intention to ever fly. And at the same time, United said, you know what? Since we're talking about it, we've already had our sights set on these Delta slots. What we also want to do is take these slots from Hawaiian. They're not using them, so we'll take those too. But Ned Russell reports from the Skift Forum in New York this week that Hawaiian claims it intends to use those slots at some point, but much like Delta, has not actually done so. But I am all for United taking these slots if it's actually going to launch flights. And I don't know, maybe fares come down a little bit. That'd there be nice. you go. I mean, that's, that's always nice when fewer dollars come out of my pocket. I'm in favor of that, generally yes, speaking. Yes. And there are not many real world applications of the term use it or lose it. But in this case, Delta didn't use its slots, so it's losing them. Good. That's how it should be. There you go. And on that note, we shall end this particular episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the previous episodes, or if you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I have some ideas about how this could be better. Let us know. Email us at podcast at fr24.com or leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts so that other people can learn about this particular podcast, find it, listen to it, and then they can email us and tell us how to make the podcast better. But in the meantime, this has been episode 235 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.